people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello, and welcome to Twelve Rules for What. This is a podcast about fascism, anti-fascism, and the far right. My name is Alex. As always, a few announcements before we begin. Uh, if you want to support the show on Patreon, you can do so by subscribing at patreon.com slash 12 rules for what. Um, any support is really welcome and helps the show keep going. It helps me doing interviews and editing and buying license, all that kind of stuff. This show is part of the Channel Zero network of radical podcasts. If you want to check out some other shows, go to the Channel Zero website for more. And you can follow their Twitter um, as well. Today's episode is going to be on the ideology of national conservatism and the series of conferences that have been organised across Europe and America designed to propagate this far-right ideology. With that said, on with the show. So today I'm joined by Tima Kirk, a researcher and writer whose work covers international far-right networks and is currently working on a PhD at City University. We're going to talk about um, the National Conservative Conference. Um, I'm sure listeners would have seen that the conference came to London in May and um, we're going to delve a bit more into what's behind the conference and a bit about what it's trying to achieve. Um, Welcome, Timo. Uh, Thanks for having me. No worries. So like I said, um, this is my way of the conference. Um, It it happened a couple of months ago and there was a lot of press about it. but I think national conservatism as an ideology is something that people are not quite, you know, it's not really fully fleshed out in their, in what the, in the face they present to, to, to the public. What are some of the core tenets of, of national conservatism as an ideology? And how does it distinguish itself from other forms of conservatism? Um, to answer this question, I think I need to go back a little bit to um, the origin of uh, the National Conservatism Conference and uh, the foundation that is attached to it, which is the um, Edmund Burke Foundation. Um, this was uh, funded by um, and established by Yoram uh, Hazoni, um, who is... Um, more like a scholar, he had made a PhD um, in politics and philosophy, and he was looking into um, conservatism and conservative uh, ideas in the United States specifically. And um, that was very much what defined the origins um, because he had a specific focus on religion and he was looking into connecting religious, specifically Christian and Jewish ideas. And uh, from there on, he involved first people from the foreign policy conservative circles and then also branching out more towards um, specifically Western European um, far-right politicians and think tanks to advance his idea of national conservatism. The conferences are still relatively new with like a big discrete events that happen around the world. Um, The first one was organized in 2019. However, you know, there's this, as you've just said, the lineage goes back a little bit further. What are the kind of organizational backgrounds for the for the events like so um of course Yoram Hazoni played a big part in finding um also people from businesses who were interested in his idea in national conservatism and one of 
the biggest sponsors for this is uh, Peter Thiel. Uh, Famous drinks the young blood of blood of young men kind of guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he um, has been speaking at many of the conferences, but there have also been um, some um, UK politicians, and there was a conference, for example, also in Rome. Um, very recently, in, I think in 2021, in which they were like uh, Giorgia Meloni and uh, also Maria Marshall from uh, France speaking. So they, it has like a wide network of different um, party and think tank structures that it builds on. And there's also, I'm sorry, this is a bit of a divergent, but of course, Viktor Orban in Hungary and his party is a big influence on this as well. And there was a national conservative conference in Hungary, I believe. Um, and it's just interesting, I guess, raised him because there was a recently reported that um, he's funding this um, urbanite, uh, I don't know how to describe his ideology, but fascist, Hungarian fascist uh, institute, that's this kind of university system, you know, like the British Institute that we have here, which is going to be based out of the Hungarian embassy. So these, this kind of like, I guess, propagation of reactionary ideas is, is it's like a multi-pronged approach, I guess. Yeah, I think um, Viktor Orban plays a big role into advancing far-right networks in general. He's not only involved um, in um, the case that you mentioned, but he has also been speaking at the conference and he's seen for uh, many people who participate as the at least European role model of how to go forward with like trying to um, yeah, push against the democratic structures. Um, his concept of illiberalism, which describes basically a reduced form of liberal democracy, has been like gaining lots of uh, traction among far right circles, especially among um, populist and uh, extreme right uh, parties in Europe. And I would think, you know, I think definitely since the 1980s that. The right, all like the the right wing of the mainstream and the liberal kind of left wing, they're all propagating some form of liberalism, really. And um, when you look at the kind of structures they support and the kind of model of capitalism that basically they're united behind, um, and I think it's really kind of worrying and interesting that there is a there is now a building of this kind of anti-liberal sentiment and this um, much more reactionary form of form of politics. Um, in your work, which I've read, read a chapter of your PhD on, on this, and it was really insightful, um, you kind of posit the conferences as a means of alternative knowledge production. And for some people who might not be in academic circles, the idea of producing knowledge or knowledge production is, it might be a kind of tricky concept to wrap your head around. Um, so what do you mean by alternative knowledge production? Um... I think I'm also personally not 100% sure if this really describes what is going on there really well. Um, the basic ideas that are like basically new interpretation or maybe also appropriation of certain very old um, ideas of what conservatism and um, the far right is about and um, the tradition that uh, Yoram Hazoni specifically refers to is called um, traditional conservatism which goes back to uh, Edmund Burke 
Uh, and this is what he built. Uh, he mostly built his work on. Um, and this is basically translating or first of all, making a difference between on one side, the more market oriented conservatives from the uh, illiberal conservatives who promote certain kinds of social conservatist values. But this, of course, ex excludes both religious and ethnic minorities. Um, cool. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it, uh, maybe an, an easy way to explain this is that um, there's often, I think there's oftentimes, you know, when you look at a political movement or like political ideologies, there's a kind of overarching set of assumptions and general kind of accepted, you know, canon, if you want, for want of a better word, that relies on a kind of backs it up and gives it kind of um, some kind of forward drive or ideological coherence. Like, although fascism and far-right politics is inherently incoherent and contradictory, there is some attempt to build that kind of overarching superstructure, I guess, of that, that the the ideology travels along. I don't know. Maybe that's a good way of explaining it. Yeah, yeah I think the, the kind of thing that brings many of the different individuals and groups together in the National Conservatism Conference is this opposition to what they present as international liberalism, which is not a very defined idea. Um, and also many people who are involved very much struggle with defining what cons national conservatism really is. And that has a lot to do with having very broad, using ver very broad terminology, which is, of course, very uh, useful in this context, because the idea of this is aligning different groups who maybe come from really different starting points, but who tried to build like um, some common ideas that they can agree on and uh, work together on. So in that sense, this is just part of how um, you build these alliances. You need to develop like a broad terminology for everybody to be able to relate um, to, to the ideas. This probably follows on to my next question, but it's hard not to see the conferences or national conservative as a kind of contradiction in the way that there are international networks and yet they're, it's in the name, you know, there are nationalist movements and, and interested in solely in national politics. So how do they kind of bring together these two things, this idea of internationalizing nationalism? Hmm. Um. Well, I think one point that comes up in some of these ideas to to understand this phenomena is that many um, far-right parties and movements um, relate to the idea of ethno-pluralism, which is um, a term that describes in and out groups. So you have at one side a state that has like... Um, a certain population that is belongs to a certain region, um, which is of course based in very like racist and biological ideas about um, belonging and ethnicity. 
And in that sense, it makes sense. So the idea is that we all, like all these people think they belong in a certain region and therefore they need to work together to achieve this goal to, um, yeah, basically maintain their um, pop orig original population. So this is a common goal that they're trying to work towards and this is also where it very much connects to these kind of population politics that many of these parties and movements promote so by population you mean like uh, around birth control and reproductive freedoms that kind of thing yes on one side that but also the kind of anti-immigrant um, rhetoric that many of these um, groups employ and uh, yeah we, the ethnopluralist thing we've seen before specifically with the you know kind of identitarian movements as well because they got even deeper you know they split France into 100 different little city states or whatever and obviously that's not what they're interested in but the same similar idea that there's a kind of racial an ethnic racial connection to the land and to a particular area as well and I guess also that's how you can accommodate Israel and Zionism into this as well because oftentimes when you um, you talk to like a when you listen to a white supremacist speaking in America for example and they're also kind of proponents of Zionism, what they say is, you know, you know, America is designated for white people and there is this area called Israel which is designated for Jewish people and so all Jewish people must must go to Israel and therefore we need a, a Zionist state and all the black people need to go to, back to Africa and it's a similar idea of everyone needs to be set in their proper place on the globe and not be able to move at all, which is obviously deeply racist. One point that I would like to add is that these ideas about um, anti-immigration are informed by different intellectual traditions and there have been many overlapses uh, among these. So um, there was a really famous um, French um, intellectual, um, De Benoit, who probably many of the listeners have heard about, and he has developed this idea of ethnopluralism in the first place. And many of these ideas have been traveling and there have been conversations also. Um, for example, Dukin has been a big influence for many thinkers on the right. And um, so it's really important to also understand and recognize that there has been this exchange of ideas and that many ideas of um, or like protest of uh, against um, like minorities have come from or are informed very much by these different international traditions. Yes, and we're going to get onto this a little bit later about how, but it's interesting how these kind of ideas that are very much in intellectual circles at first, like Dugin is a public intellectual in, in Russia and, and de Benoit is a, you know, an intellectual in France, you know, he's a racist intellectual and he still is one and how they filter through down into movements on the ground. Um, one thing that really struck me in your work was kind of national conservatives and ideas around the family and kind of family politics. Um, and I think the family is kind of posted as this the central unit of the nation, you know. Um, and I wondered if you could briefly just go over what is the national conservative ideal of the family? Um, yeah, I think 
as I've mentioned uh, earlier, that um, Hazoni is borrowing this idea from Edmund Burke, who is talking about the family as the core unit of society. So this is very much rooted in um, the idea that you have um, the patriarchal family model of father, mother, and the child as the tenant that holds society together in its smallest unit, and that you have like the dominant role of the father and the mother is there to take care of the children. So very, what we would consider um, traditional, so-called traditional uh, family values. And this is something that he builds on um, in his in his work a lot. And this is then, of course, also very much expressed in uh, what um, many... Uh, far-right groups that are involved with the organization translate into more concrete policies. So um, there is the fight against reproductive rights. Um, there's a lot of um, efforts to roll back um, abortion rights, for example. But for listeners in the UK, they are probably more familiar with the discussions on um, trans issues that are happening and how um, rights for trans people are very much um, limited and fought against through these culture war narratives that um, far-right groups try to promote. You can see that, with, especially on, on, on trans, the transness and trans people are I like kind of the ultimate boogeyman at the moment as well, uh, quite deliberately. So, you know, they're essentially they're coming for your children they're going to corrupt, they're going to corrupt your children, they're predators. Um, and they're essentially going to break apart this traditional family unit. And um, I guess in the UK, we don't see the abortion stuff too much, but there is, of course, the, the March for Life um, rally that's happening on the September 9th, I think, uh, which is going to be you know tens of thousands of people on the streets. Um, there is a kind of a, I guess, a latent reactionary movement in this country around abortion that is 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 like slowly building, I think, and it's something to we need to keep an eye on. Of course, the trans stuff is much more um, much more present in our minds and across the newspapers and things like that. It's not particularly latent. But, uh, yeah. um, one thing that I would like to add here is that I feel this is a very UK-specific situation. Of course, in many other countries, also trans uh, topics are very much discussed. There was uh, very recently also a law um, called Selbstbestimmungsgesetz that was um, very much discussed also among like right and far and like left wing circles. Even there, there were like some misinformation uh, misinformation that was spread. Um, so. I think it's happening also in other countries, but the UK is definitely um, an exceptional case. Um, in other countries, I feel this is less, the debate is less heated. I do think we do. I think the UK does export a lot of this stuff as well, um, not just through, you know, through, you know, very, like, I mean, very concretely through anti-trans activists traveling from the UK and doing these speaking tours and, and going out and, and basically proselytizing uh, an anti-trans message, which, um, you know, is, is coordinated and is funded as well, I think. 
So I think another thing that struck me was kind of from the start, um, these conferences have featured quite famous people, like quite high profile people. So you, we mentioned Peter Thiel already, whose you know, famous contribution to political discourse was the, his idea that you know, democracy and freedom are incompatible, which is a very famous quote of his, and one of which he can justify with his own knowledge and his own knowledge production as well. Um, but there are other kind of personalities too, like people like Tucker Carlson, Dennis Prager, these big far-right personalities that have got had the, kind of built these massive platforms in the States. Um, just thinking in general of a more wider far-right ecosystem, what role do you think these kind of figures play within it? Because I, for me personally, I feel there's a lot going on. They're creating their own ideas, they're amplifying, they're building bridges across audiences as well to a large degree. Um, so yeah, what's your thoughts on that? Um, I think the initial idea of Hasoni and the network was to first develop new ideas about what can bring together a global right-wing alliance. Um, but it then developed further. And I think the biggest impact that uh, national conservatism is trying to influence and radicalize um, people in conservative parties and in far-right parties to create alliances among former liberal conservatives who very much agreed with democratic values uh, and moving them further to the right. Um, you can see that the most clearly in the United States where they, uh, on a regular basis, invite um, certain politicians from the Republican Party, but you can also see that in the UK where they try to target specific politicians and invite them to their major conferences to um, give them a voice and amplify um, their ideas uh, through these people. So um, they are doing this at the moment, mostly uh, in the United States and in the UK, but it is, I think, very scaring that the, that they already um, had so many conferences, considering that they only um, were established officially in 2019. So it is very impressive and it shows how much influence they have because they did every year a major conference in the United States, but then they also had a conference I think already two conferences in the UK and uh, one in Rome. So um, I think it is very important to keep an eye on uh, the National Conservative Conference and their future plans uh, because they are just very, they have many resources and many connections. The one in Maine specifically was, I was a bit taken aback. I mean, obviously I know about National Conservatism, but how big it was, you know, it was in Methodist Hall, it was like, thousands of people, thousands of attendees, you know, the, the fee to attend would be a certain amount of money. They must have made a lot of money on the event. Um, it feels like um, there's enough funding, there's enough political will and enough like competency, like basic organizational competency for it to be a, for this kind of conference to be a fixture for, for, you know, years to come going forward. So it's definitely, I think something anti-fascists everywhere need to be aware of because of course these ideas lead in, which is something I'm going to ask about in a second. Um, yeah, I think one important thing about this surprise might also stem from their strategies. Um, 
the way that the think tanks and foundations work that they collaborate with is very much in secret. And there's no interest from their side to be open about um, anything that they do because that is how they work the most effectively. They try to influence policy makers mostly and uh, that works best in the, in the hidden. There's no interest from their side to um, attract any kind of negative um, counter movement, people who are trying to oppose them. So um, they, of course, they are a public affair think tank as such, but um, they live from spreading their ideas. And I think that is also like an issue with how mainstream media is covering um, the National Conservatism Conference. There's some, some critical um, journalism that tries to look into um, some of these ideas deep, more deep. But in general, they, I think, very much um, profit from having people um, just sharing these articles about the conference. And that makes them also more appealing to a mainstream audience. They were featured so widely that this will just um, help them further um, build. I mean, this I know this like goes a little bit into um, this platforming um, discussion, but I think it's important to mention this because I think that is one of their strategies to gain legitimacy by being covered from like major liberal uh, news um, sources. Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky balance to place, isn't it? Because on the one hand, it exists, it needs to be criticised, like this is an actual thing that should be reported on, but at the same time, you have to be really careful about how you do it. And I, I actually don't think mainstream journalists are, are pretty are that interested in in really digging. They don't think, like a lot, it would require a lot of investigatory research, resources as well um, and of course we're seeing a lot of um, you know investigations are being kind of stripped out of newspapers you know the there's less funding for them around there's less manpower around there's less you know resources because uh, resources in general and so there's not enough time for these proper long-form pieces to be done so instead you have this very surface level reporting of this is the conference this is what happened here's the big names that came and, and basically nothing else about you know what you've been talking about. What's the kind of ideological structure behind it? Who's organizing it? Where is their influence coming from in between the conferences too? Because of course, a lot of work happens in the build-up to a conference, after the conference, just on an ongoing basis. Um, you know, um, I think it's important that to understand what they, how they present themselves to the media and the way the, the actually internal work that they are doing. So I think there is a big difference between how they communicate to media and how they work internally to advance national conservatism. Um, and that is, I think, part of what makes them so successful. I think they don't seem as radical to somebody who's just um, learning about them and um, the way it is consciously, consciously built like that. Um, it's basically a reinterpretation of what nationalism is about. And the way that it is presented is um, this is not dangerous. We're just 
trying to introduce something new and we try to revive interest in politics. But when you look further into the ideology and the people who are involved in this network, you understand uh, what the actual goal is and how they are not trying to promote any kind of political engagement, but quite the opposite. Just on the question of, of ideologically of concepts bleeding down into, into street movements, how, how much do you think this is the case? And like, how do you think ideas that are produced in the national conservative conferences are used on the ground by, by movements? Is it, is it, do you see much of a bleed down? Because we've talked about policy quite a lot, but not about actual far-right, I suppose, street activism. It's a good question. Um, I think that this movement is more targeting elite circles. That is the, the goal of this organization. It does not engage very much with um, far-right movements as such. Um, and I'm not, yeah. I'm, I'm not really sure why that is, um, but the the first idea I think the it comes the the origin of this organization comes very much from a from policy circles from these um, uh, American and Hazoni originally comes from Israel, um, but then moved to the United States to um, study there from these US foreign policy circles. And that was the first starting point. And when you look at the way that they talk about national conservatism, you can see how it is very much policy oriented and is addressing the role of the state um, very much so i don't think that they are interested necessarily in collaborating with um, groups on the grounds i suppose there is an element of like filtering um so you know they're influencing policy on a quite high level you know we're talking about like presidents and prime ministers and and top mps so very very elite of of european and american politics but then that filters into the party, filters into the media, and then it then therefore filters further down. So it's probably quite hard to trace a direct line from you know from what Nat, someone said at NatCon in 2023 and what someone does at the, the shores of Dover in, in maybe a few months later. But at the same time, you know, if you look at the kind of the fame mongering around the asylum seeker, asylum seekers in hotels in the UK, or or you know, fame mongering about the border and build the wall. All that kind of those ideas and those concept of, of a nation under attack by migrants, for example, is filtering down in some ways. It, it takes a little circuitous route. The other example I would I would think of is I, I've been doing a bit of research on Patriot Alternative, which we've talked about extensively on this program, which is the um, UK's largest fascist, explicitly neo-Nazi fascist group. Um, and in a month of listening to the regular PWR live stream that the leader Mark Collette does on a Wednesday, three out of the four episodes were substantially about trans panic, trans issues, this trans person attacked a child, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, for 40 minutes was talking about this, this one thing. So th that's something that definitely 
a kind of a general far right has latched onto, and the more explicitly fascist elements have also latched onto, um, which is interesting and is not something that would have been the case necessarily, like for example, ten years ago. How much that was due to national conservatism, I think, is up for debate because you know transphobia is rife and widespread in society, but also I think there is like a some of the statistics and some of the you know, kind of some of the kind of ideological backing, I think you can trace a line as well. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah, I think I talked about this a little bit before. I think there's definitely some form of diffusion that is happening mm -hmm. and they're, they're trying to appeal to a mass audience. That is something that I think is also very clear by presenting national conservatism as this new idea um, and it's just a very hard way of like tracing the impact that they have on larger audiences there's definitely this um, effort to radicalize politics on the right and that trickles down to some extent mm -hmm. but it is very hard to make any statements about how this as you have rightly said like kind of boils down to um, street politics um, protests demonstrations um, any kind of resistances that happen through grassroots movements having said that um you know, and maybe taking slightly taking off our researcher hats here and putting on a more of an activisty hat, whether we're activists or not, it doesn't matter. Um, I often think that UK anti-fascism has been very good at countering explicit, you know, far-right street movements. You know, the EDL you think of, which were opposed very effectively, uh, national action and the more like white man's mark stuff as well. You know, very good opposition. It's less good, I would say, at dealing with the more, you know, even more fascist kind of far-right terror kind of people necessarily because it's difficult to oppose and find out what's happening and it's you know often deemed to be the preserve of the security services for right or wrong and it's also i think quite bad at opposing i suppose more governmental forms of far-right politics so explicitly like national conservatism but also you know Maloney getting getting into into office and and orban and these these other places and the UK equivalent of them um, is it's, it's much harder. You can you can have a battle around the ballot box in many ways with the BNP and keep them out, but once they're in power, I think people are a bit more clueless. Um, having said so, you know, having said that, how do you think we can you know what do you think are some 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 good kind of opposition tactics to the National Con Conservative Conference because it's very hard to stage a demonstration outside it because it'll just be ignored, they have private security, you know, like it's, this is, it's a big thing. And I wondered how you think people on the left could start, you know, working to counter this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I think it's a, it's a difficult, difficult question um, because I think in general, there's not enough understanding of what this conference is about. And I feel there was a general confusion about why people oppose um, the conference at all. Um, I think just creating awareness about what these organizations are about is really important. Um, I see 
I think it's still important to um, organize protests. And I think also the size can matter in this context. So I feel like if there's more um, awareness, the counter movement against this will grow. And I think that is also still like a viable options to, to oppose that. But of course, considering like how small it has been or like how little um, information there was on what was going on um, beforehand, it was really diff difficult to create any kind of counter mobilization there. So the, the secretive nature of it makes it more difficult. But I feel that there is um, a lot of interest into these groups, and this will also improve the ability to be more effective in countering um, these ideas. I'm like not having any <laughs> clear solutions for that, for sure. But um, I think they're like, I'm very hopeful about having like successful protests and counter mobilizations uh, against them in the future because they will not remain um, as much in the dark as they wish they would stay. So I think that will make a big difference in um, countering these kind of, um, yeah, politics. Yeah, and you can only really be secret about this kind of stuff for so long as well. Like you... There's, a, there's an element on the far right, and I, I suppose on the left too, but to a lesser extent of needing to outdo yourself, you know, needing to push the boundaries of what's acceptable to say and what's acceptable to do. And necessarily that's the kind of balancing act you have to make within that, you know, like you, you want to appease the kind of more extreme elements whilst also presenting this nice, more kind of anodyne face to the world as well. And that's often a contradiction we see a lot in, in far right movements as well. Um, and if you're going to push the envelope, if you're going to bring more people in, if you're going to further radicalize, you're going to have to show your hand a lot more, I feel. And so that will also be helpful in, in raising people's, uh, kind of concern about this as well. Um, I think another point that is also making it more difficult for far right movements in the UK to be really successful is that some parts of the UK are relatively diverse places like you don't have um, that many at least bigger cities who have a majority white population so that is also making it more difficult to navigate for these far-right groups to promote their ideas um, so i think that is like another factor that might also lead in the future especially when it comes to the tactics of um, far-right movements in general to rely on gender and sexuality as mm. their main uh, point of attack because it's harder to gain ground for any kind of like white supremacy uh, positions if you're like in such a minority in some of the places. Yeah, and you have like, for example, white white people living in Tower Hamlets, for example, or Newham, which is incredibly diverse boroughs. Like, there, there is a, it's quite hard to have many kind of non-white neighbors and who people you get on with and live beside and do things for and have that community that still exists in London, and then also be a racist towards those people. Like, it's quite it's very impossible to do that in many ways. Um, uh, and so, yeah, it ends up being 
it ends up being kind of a provincial movement of one of like small town market towns, you know, countryside rural areas, you know, where there may be less diverse areas, which is not, you know, you know, big up to the small towns, but they're not exactly, you know, growing and dynamic and, and populous as well. Like it, there are, these are, these are, there are elements of these places being left behind, um, which is a bad thing, but also, uh, you know, recognizing that the diminishment of their kind of political sway and kind of general cultural sway as well. Um, okay. I've got one more question and this is not one I sent you, but it's something that occurred to me while I was talking and. I, I think I've asked an element of this question to a lot of people recently because it, it's been on my mind, of course, which is um, our ongoing ecological cat catastrophe and what that might mean. Um, so, you know, we, we've been thinking when me and my writing partner have thought a lot about the intersection of climate change, climate crisis and, and risk movements and how they might use the climate crisis to their advantage. And I just wondered what your thoughts were on, firstly, is there a national conservative take on the environment, for one thing? Well, you might you might know, you might not. And secondly, you know, in the next 10, 20 years, as the world starts to degrade and as we probably see a kind of wrapping up of border institutions, which in our liberal democratic institutions, you know, we have to recognise that borders are a part of liberalism, prisons are a part of liberalism. Well, we see an intensification of border politics and an increasing drive to keep people where they are. Do you think national conservatism will become more or less relevant in that kind of context? Because there is a, the reason I'm asking is there is a, a I know we're kind of future, we're trying to see into the future, which is impossible. But at the same time, you know, it, it could be that as the conservatives and Labour become more reactionary and more interested in border security, blah, 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 these ideas are less needed. You know, they're less, the national conservative is less needed because the ideas are now there, or it could be that they strengthen from these ideas and they uh, about these from these processes and then build further and radicalize further. Have you got any kind of thoughts on this? Um, I think the connection there is to the um, population discourse that we talked about before, and among these right-wing circles, there exists ideas about the so-called demographic winter, which is basically the opposite. It's not um, too little people, uh, not too many people, but too little. And I think there is this implication, of course, about who are the people who are not there. And it is very clear that this comes from a white supremacist um, idea of there's not enough white people or not enough people um, from the original. Yeah, I don't know how to phrase that correctly. Yeah. But the idea that um, we need to reproduce as a nation and this is not happening enough. And there is rather um, the attempt to create policies that make people... Um, especially white populations um, to have more babies. And there's some try to implement new policies that will uh, push people to have more children. So it's kind of going into the, the absolute opposite direction. Um, and of course, there are implications uh, when it comes to um, border politics. 
And the stance of these organizations are really clear. They are very much in favor of stricter border controls, which has, um, which they state very obviously. And that is, I feel already like on the softer side of it, some of the people who are involved in the networks, of course, advocate for like even um, more extreme measures like sending people who are seeking asylum back to countries and things like that. So um, that is very much something that they can adapt to in the long run. Um, so they, I think these are the two. This idea, this Garrett Hardin idea of life, but ethics, like, you know, you, you can't save everybody. So it's ethical to save some people. And those people just happen to be those who live, who are white and living in, in the West. Um, Okay. Um, if anyone wants to like find your work, I guess you can look your your profile on City University. See some papers you've done. Um, yeah, I have just uh, published uh, end of last year um, a paper where I'm looking at uh, anti-gender mobilization, something that we've talked quite a bit also in this um, uh, paper, which is looking a little bit into the research on uh, anti-gender movements. So uh, that is dealing not only with far-right movements, but also with the role of conservative and uh, Christian right organizations that try to fight reproductive rights and uh, sexual and uh, sexual diversity. Um, so if that's what's, what's coming next, and I'm working on an article where I'm also looking at um, far-right practices and ideas uh, in Europe. Um, that's it for us today, guys. Um, thank you very much, Kima, and thank you all for listening. Thank you.